Well, if you have your Bible or a smartphone or some device that you'll be looking at the text with us, we'll be in 1 John chapter 5 this morning. 1 John 5. Uh, We've been working for the last couple months through this letter. Um, just as a means of a little bit of recap, remember 1 John um, is, a, is a letter that was sent to many churches, not to one specific church, written by the Apostle John. Um, it, it's sent because there's a, a common issue that's going on in the churches around Ephesus where John is an elder, and that false teachers have emerged um, from within the church, which is something Paul had warned them about in Acts when he left Ephesus, that, that there would be wolves from within that would come in looking um, and, and out of relationships and, and knowing and loving people, and then they're going to walk away from the truth, and they're going to look to harm the flock. They're going to look to draw people away. And so John is taking a very pastoral approach, is looking to minister to these churches and folks there in order to give them um, hope, to give them peace, to give them ultimately assurance um, against the false teachers. And so one of the ways that he's done this is he's walked us through three tests or kind of three criteria of how to know whether you are walking with Jesus or not. And he's looked at a moral test, um, do, we, do we obey God? He's looked at a social test, do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? And he's given a doctrinal test, do we believe the right things? I mean, he's also laid out kind of three lies that we said, look, if you say you love God and you hate your brother, then you're a liar, right? He's saying, so if you, if you don't meet the social test, you're a liar if you claim to also love Jesus. He says, look, if you say that you don't have sin in you, you're a liar. You're, you're failing the moral test. And then he says that if you, if you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you're failing the doctrinal test. And so he's looked at these, come back to them several times, really trying to just to build on them what they would look like in the lives of a believer. And so we're going to pick up in John 5, and what we're going to see here is that he's going to bring all three of these tests together in a short section right here. So let's begin in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So John is beginning to, to bring his letter to a conclusion. And what he's doing here is he's bringing all three, the social, the moral, and the doctrinal tests together and letting us see that they're all, they all affect one another. It's almost like a circle that if you take a part out, you can't complete them. That you don't start with one and end with one, that they, they're all necessary. Making sure that people don't say, well, I believe the right things, so I passed that test so I must love Jesus, and then I'll treat people like crap. He's like, he's like you got to have all of them. He's like, you got to pass all of these tests, all right? And so the false teachers have come in, and what they've done is they've just denied, um, one, that Jesus was the Messiah, right? That he was sent by God. They've denied that his death was necessary. 
Some are denying that his, his humanity. Others are deny, denying his divinity. But look at what John tells them in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Right? Such a, a quick sentence. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. But what we have to make sure we understand is all that that entails. That Jesus is the Christ. For him to be the Christ, it means that he is the God-man. That, as Paul says in Galatians, that at the right time in human history that God saw fit to send Jesus to rescue us, born of a virgin, who then would live a sinless, perfect, trusting, obedient life, would go to the cross innocent, and on our behalf would absorb the punishment and the wrath of God towards sin and towards those who have rebelled against him, which is all of us. And then because he was innocent and because he was faithful, because he was God, that he beat sin and Satan and death and is alive today, that three days later he was resurrected from the tomb, right? That he's not just a good teacher. He's not just a moral example. He's not just a historical thought or story, that he's the Christ, that he's the solution to our problems, that he is the Son of God, that he is King and Creator and Sustainer, that in him all things hold together, that in him we have hope and forgiveness and life and salvation, that he was there in the beginning and through him were all things created. Right, that when he says that he believes that Jesus is the Christ, right, it's this simple phrase, but what he's saying is, do you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be? Because the false teachers are saying, yeah, yeah, Jesus, but not this aspect. And they're taking aspects of him away, which means he's not the Christ, and you don't believe that he is the Christ. So he says, look, you have to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, the issue with this is that what John is not saying is you just need to have intellectual understanding that Jesus is a figure in history called the Christ. You need to know some facts about it. Because we, we see throughout the Gospels, including in Mark 1, that the demons would look at Jesus and say, we know that you're the Holy One of God. We know who you are. Then in James 2, it says that even the demons believe and they shudder. They know who Jesus is. So it's not mere affirmation or intellectual agreement of that Jesus is this historical figure or that he's even from God because the demons would say that and be in agreement and they don't trust him. They don't follow him. And so to believe that Jesus is the Christ is not just to merely affirm it intellectually, but it's to follow him. It's to trust him. It's to affirm him. It's to give your allegiance and your surrender to him. Because where, where the demons go awry is they say, we know who you are, and we're choosing to rebel against you. We're choosing not to listen. We're choosing not to follow. We're choosing not to do what you say. And the fact is, is we can do that. We can say, I affirm that Jesus is who he claims to be in history. It just has no effect on my life. And he says that mental affirmation isn't sufficient. But have you surrendered? Have you given yourself to him? Do you trust him? Do you follow him? Do you know him? Do you love him? Because that's what it means. That, it, it's necessary. He also, as he's laying out this, in, in, and notice this is the doctrinal test. Do we believe the right thing? 
that he's also reminding them of the humility needed. Because the false teachers were arrogant. They were trying to draw men to themselves. They were prideful, feeling superior. But he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, right, this right belief, this right surrender, has been born of God. Right? There's humility in the fact that we've been born of God. Because what he's saying is that God initiated it. Right? So, um, we, we have constant reminders of this here at Redeemer, right, as babies keep coming, right? Um, that, that Janner, our new son, did not say, I think I'm going to go get myself born, right? Like that that was done to him, right? That he was created and, and brought forth, right? I don't think that's him, right? <laughs> um, Right? Like that, but that he didn't decide one day, I think I'm going to create myself. I think I'm going to be born. That it was something that was done to him. And now he's alive and he's breathing and he's called son and he has a name. But it was done to him. That what God is, what, what John is saying is like salvation is initiated upon us. In Ephesians 2, Paul would say that we're dead in our sins. We're dead in our trespasses. But by the grace of God, right, that he rescues us. And so he says here right, that we are that those who believe this is because they have been born of God. Humility. Your salvation is not something to champion because you're better than other people. It has been a gift of grace and of mercy. And so we are humble. We're not arrogant. We're not boastful in ourselves or in what we've obtained. That's so why Paul would say, if I boast, I'm only going to boast in Jesus and in the cross. Right? Because that is the only thing that we have. How do we lord over someone something that we have been given that we did not obtain by our own efforts and our own hands? That we should walk in humility. It's also a reminder that we're not all the children of God until this moment happens. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ it, when that has occurred, has been born of God. Now you're a child of God. And he continues, And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. We, we see now he's mixing the social test, do we love others, into the doctrinal test. He's not talking about Jesus here. He's talking about other believers. Listen, he says, Whoever loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. We are the ones who have been born of him the sons and daughters of the king. So he says, if you're going to right, if you're going to believe the right things, you're also going to love those who also believe these things in Christ. And then we see the moral test in verse 2. And by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And you see he's just kind of intertwined them all throughout. So how do you know you love God? When you obey him. How do you know that you love the children of God when you love God and you obey? He just starts to say, they're all together. They're all intertwined. That in loving God, you, are, you love his people. And that if you're going to do those things, you're going to obey him. And in, and in obeying him, it's going to lead you to love people and to love God. Right? That they're all intertwined together. We cannot separate them out. So verse 2, that we obey his commandments. It's one of the, the consistent teachings that we've seen in Scripture, whether it's in Deuteronomy 6 or in Matthew 22, that we are called to love God and to love people. 
That that's what Jesus has said it. God told it to the people of Israel that we are just called to love God and to love people, that we don't separate those things out, which means this, that salvation is not merely an emotional experience. It's not merely this memory you have of this powerful spiritual emotional thing happening to you that you look back on and now you're like, but I'm not super, like I don't, I don't really like obey God and I don't really like love his people, but I have this, I had this moment. He's saying, if you know God, if you have been born of God, then you're following him. And there's this moral commitment that has been made and that's not what saves you, but it's evidence that that experience has happened, that God has birthed you, that you know him and love him. It's practical. There's follow through. It also means this in verse 2, that when we love God, we obey his commandments, that Jesus is our example of how we love people, that Jesus is our example of how we pursue people, that he pursued those who were at war with him, rebels and enemies, that he went after them, that he was long-suffering with them, that he drew them in through kindness and mercy and love. It means he's our standard for what this looks like. Right, like that, that we don't get to determine what love is. Right, that we know that God is love and that he loved us first. So here's the thing. If we, here's where sometimes the world wants to throw, throw rocks at the church is they say, hey, your definition of love, we don't like it. That's not loving to us. But we understand that someone not feeling loved doesn't mean that love isn't occurring, right? We, we see this in, in, in parenting, right? That there are times where your child wants to do something foolish, dumb, dangerous, ignorant, right? Like violent, and you stop them. And you don't allow them to carry the knife around. You don't allow them to play in the street. You don't allow them to lasso their sibling, right? And then string them up, right? You don't do the... And they're thinking, well, you don't love me because you're not letting me do what I want. And you're saying, no, I'm loving you by giving you the discipline you need, by stopping something from happening, by calling it sin, right? And in, in, in that moment, they're not going, I feel really loved by mom and dad, Man, it's, it's so warm and fuzzy. Man, I'm so glad you're my dad. That's typically not what's going on. It's usually more screaming, running, hiding, I hate you, right? You never let me do anything. And in that, in that moment where your child would not say what is happening is loving, we understand that it is. Then it has long-term benefits, Think about salvation for a moment. That salvation occurs because you've become aware of your lack. You've become aware of your sin. You've become aware of your need. And so all of a sudden, the weight of what you have done and the fact that you have offended a holy God, that you have rebelled against a holy God, all of that comes down on you. And before it crushes you and you feel like, I'm not sure that God's going to love me. I feel like he's going to destroy me. Then in that severe mercy, salvation comes. Because then he says, but I've taken care of it in Christ. And I'm going to call you into my family as son or daughter. He doesn't first say, ah, don't worry about it. All that stuff, not a big deal. Just come in. We deal with the sin first. We deal with 
the, the brokenness and the separation and the need and the lack first. And so in that moment, you probably don't feel super loved. And then love comes in immediately after, but all of it was love. And so we, under, we understand that. Um, let's consider it even in regards to, to church discipline, right? Where a believer who loves Jesus has become in, entrenched in sin and they're walking away. And James would say, look, you pursue your brothers, right? Bringing them back from the very edge of death. Paul would say, look, you you do judge within the church. You draw them back. You call sin what it is, right? And if you have to, you send them out of the church so that, right, they'll see what is going on and be saved, right? You you turn them over for a little bit so they'll see what they're missing and what they're lacking. In those moments, the person who has like hardened their heart to sin isn't going, man, y'all are loving me so well. Thank you for this. Thank you for the public humiliation. Thank you for breaking relationship. Thank you for calling my sin out. They're thinking, you call yourself Christians. You say you love me. If you loved me, then you would accept me, and you wouldn't judge me, and they start throwing Scripture back. But the actual loving thing that is taking place in that moment is the hard thing. It is the hard thing. So listen, the world is often going to accuse us of not being loving, because they don't like the, the fact that, that Scripture calls sin, sin. And it says there's a standard, and that standard is Jesus. It's not us. It's Jesus. And that's why we have to carry ourselves not with arrogance because we're saved, but in humility that, yes, and once too were we. And still we would be except for Jesus. And so He is our hope, and He is our rescue, and He is our standard, and He is loving even if it doesn't feel like love in the moment. That he is doing the greater good, the thing that will rescue us and keep us from ending our life in destruction and apart from him and separate from him. And so we see in John verses 1, 5, verses 1 and 2, we see the doctrinal test. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. We see the social test. Whoever loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see the moral test. And we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we obey His commandments. All right. So John is saying love God, love people, and believe the right stuff. And real quick, that can start to feel like burdensome. That's a lot. And I think I, I, I don't do that every day. Actually, I don't do any, right? And you start to think, oh, my word, I'm horrible at this. I have no assurance. I don't know Jesus. Woe is me. Because it can feel overwhelming. And I think for many people, when they think of church, this is what they think about, like this expectation that's huge, that I can't do it, right? A list of do's and don'ts, that the church is out here to, to, to kill my good time, to call anything that I enjoy sin, and to ask me to do stuff I don't want to do. Right? And maybe it's because often the church has taught morality. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. Here's what you, what you can do. Here's what you avoid. But we've taught it without the why, and we've taught it without relationship. And so it feels like all of these rules and these lists and these do's and the don'ts, and it feels burdensome. So it's why you'll see folks say, I'll just, I'll trust Jesus on my deathbed, right? What they're saying is, I want to avoid all the lists and all the rules and all the do's and all the don'ts. 
And at the last second, I'll believe the right stuff, but I'll have lived the life I wanted to live. But John says, look at verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are, are not burdensome. So he's saying, look, you want, you want to say you love God? You have to obey him. But church, guess what? To obey him should not burden you. It's not burdensome. So let's talk about for a second what is burdensome. Um, if you're a teacher currently, you understand burdensome. Right? Like if you know a teacher, if you have a kid in school, right? You understand burdensome. Because there's an expectation that comes from kind of this nebulous place on high that is more than any human can do. It's more than any team of humans can do to accomplish, right, in the amount of time given. Right? And, and so that's why you see teachers just kind of like wilting, right? Because it's, it's spring break and they've survived and now we're just trying to make it to June. And these are people who love what they do. Like, since it is a God-given calling, and yet there's an expectation upon them that is not bringing forth life. It's like crushing, right? So we think of, let's go to Scripture for a second. We think of Pharaoh, right, who was called a harsh taskmaster. So the expectation was more bricks, and not just more bricks, but now you have to gather straw. And not only do you have to gather the straw and make the bricks, we're going to have people beating you while you do it, right? Because we're, we're controlling you. And so what it is, is there's this expectation of here's what you've got to do, and what you have to do, you actually can't do it. You actually can't ob- obtain it. You can't accomplish it. And so, but the expectation's not going to stop, and we're going to yell at you when you don't do it. And so then it begins to just feel like burdensome. Like, what am, I can't win. What am I supposed to do? And what John is saying is if this is what Jesus feels like to you, if this is what the church feels like to you, then you're getting it wrong. That it should not be burdensome. It should not be overwhelming. Right? It's, it's, we have to remember we have an enemy who lies to us. Right? And so here's what the devil's going to do. He likes to change the rules on us. So he's going to say, hey, God's not good. You keep doing what you're doing because it brings it brings joy and it brings satisfaction. It brings these things that you enjoy. And if you go to God, he's going to tell you to stop it. And so, you know, because God's a big bad bully like that. He's a really harsh taskmaster. Or you're walking with God for a while and then he starts to say, hey, do you remember all that stuff you used to do? He doesn't really like you. He's just waiting to destroy you. Right? And so he just, he changes it. If you're pursuing them, it's a reminder of what you've done. If you're not pursuing God, then it's, it's saying, hey, he's, he's not faithful. You've done too much. You can't go to him now or keep doing it. It's going to bring you satisfaction. And here's the truth. You have done too much. You have sinned, all of us, and rebelled against a holy God. And it is an insurmountable obstacle. There is nothing we can do in any sort of religious activity to return to him. Right, like that's the severe truth and severe mercy that is poured upon us. And when we hear that, that's where a lot of people stop. Or they say, I'm just going to go do it anyway, and maybe God will, like, maybe the scale will kind of balance out or something. But what Jesus says is this. When you can't, Jesus says, come to me. 
right? Come to me. This is Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor, right, all who work and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he says, you think that it's going to be burdensome, and I'm telling you it's not. Come to me and rest. Come and eat. Come and be satisfied. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I am not a harsh taskmaster. Because what he's done is he's paid for the sin that we've committed, the rebellion that we have done. It's been paid for. He has, he has satisfied the wrath of God. And so when he says come, he has the right to say come. He's paid for it. And so walking with Jesus then becomes this overflow of relationship. It's why in John 15, Right? He says, be connected to the vine. And if you're connected to the vine, you'll bear fruit. You'll look like me because I'm going to produce it in you. It's why in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about transformation and says this in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, right, if you're in him, if you've come to him, if you're connected to the vine, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ has reconciled, he's made right us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them and has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So Jesus says, hey, there's a a high expectation that you can't meet. It's okay, I met it. And I'm saying, come and eat, come and drink without money, come and do these things, come be a part of this. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Be connected to me and you will find yourself loving my commands because you will be transformed to look like me. You'll put off fruit of me. You'll be connected to me. And so church, here's the question this morning. What really satisfies you? Right, what brings satisfaction truly? Not what you know you're supposed to say because it's Sunday morning, but what really satisfies you? Because here's the thing. Let's, if we, we just want to talk about like purity, right? Sex for a second. And you think about what Scripture has called us to. And he says, right, between a man and a woman after marriage, right? And we begin to say, oh, God, rules, regulations, you're holding me down, right? What are you doing? And we're sa- here's, here's the question, what actually satisfies us? Do we believe trusting, knowing, obeying God is what brings satisfaction? Or do we believe that doing what we want, when we want, how we want brings sa- satisfaction? Right? It, it's a question that's asked with money, there are opportunities right now, most likely, to cheat on your taxes, to fudge a little bit, to forget to, right? And what the, what the devil is saying, what our enemy is saying is, hey, what you really need, what will really satisfy you is more money. And this is a way to do it. Here's what you need, right? Or you look at jobs, and you're like, ah, it's not really the job I want. I think it's going to cause me to maybe make some decisions for my family or my life that might 
make me compromise a little bit, but it's more money, and money's what will satisfy, right? That, that what Scripture is doing is it's, it's asking us in each of these moments, what actually satisfies you? How do you really see Jesus? Where is your affection for Him ultimately? In relationships, do I trust Jesus when He says that He wants us to live at peace with one another, or does my pride come into play, and I'm like, I'm not apologizing, right? Because I want pride, and I want power. Lord, I believe him when he says that what we want is peace. Let's look at one that maybe is a little less, a little less obvious, right? He calls us to know him in relationship through his word, and through prayer, and through scripture. But what we find is not that we, it's, man, we just like noise. So whether it's video games, or whether it's TV, whether it's entertainment of any sort, that we're just like, that satisfies me more. And we know that ultimately it doesn't, but in the, in the interim it does, quickly it does, and so we choose the fast food over the good meal. Right? And in all of these things, what John is saying is what satisfies you? Is it what God has called us to, or is it some false companion of it, some false alternative to it? So for me, here's mine. I, have, I often struggle with wanting to be, right, Savior. Having a little bit of a Messiah complex. I'll be the one, like, call me, I'll be there. No, 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 it's fine, I'll, I'm, I'm coming. And Jesus hasn't called me to be that. He's called me to be a pastor. He's called me to love and to shepherd and to point to Jesus. I'm not Savior. How do I know? I have to sleep. And stuff still happens and I can't be there. That I get tired. That there's more than I can get to. But he hasn't called me to that. And if I think he has, then I begin to become burdened by what a pastor is supposed to do. And I become weary and I become tired and it begins to crush me. And then I say, God, what are you doing? And he says, I've called you to Sabbath. I've called you to rest. I've called you to prayer. I've called you to trust me. And you're trying to be me. So, do I get more satisfaction in resting in the king of the universe who calls me to rest? Or in the approval of man who say you're doing a good job? Right? This is, this is what John is calling us. He's like, if we are walking in faithful affection and obedience to the king then we will find our satisfaction there. And when our satisfaction begins to turn to something else, we know that we're not seeing him rightly, that we're seeing the world with, with incorrect lenses and eyes. Jesus doesn't call us to do these things alone. He equips us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us his word. He gives us access to him in prayer. He gives us one another. He doesn't say, hey, here's all the commands I've given you in Scripture. Good luck. He said, man, connect with me, and you'll begin to look like me, which means you'll obey my commands, and you'll love my people, and you'll love me. It, it's, it's, it's simple. It's just not easy. And so, if we begin to, to, to see his commandments as not burdensome, as we walk in, in closeness with him, John ends it with this. We overcome the world. Look at verse 4. 
For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And that is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So he's saying, I want you to overcome the false teachers. I want you to overcome the world. I want you to overcome the enemy that's trying to lie to you and deceive you, to lead you into self-deception. The world is fading away. There will be a day where this world will be no more as we know it. But there's a kingdom that's eternal, and we've been brought into it as sons and daughters of the king. John Piper says this, that anything that makes God's commands seem burdensome is the world. Right? So he doesn't say it's, it's, that it's all sinful. Some of it is, is in, in this gray area. But he says anything in your life, anything in your world that begins to make you think to obey Jesus in this would be a burden. He goes, that is of the world. And you're being lied to. Because his commands are not burdensome. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so we have victory at the cross. Like Jesus has won. He has defeated the power of sin and he's paid for the penalty of sin. And so he says, continue to follow me and to trust me. To apply the gospel to your life. He's calling us to say, do we see rightly? Right? Do we see clearly the world and Jesus? Do we see them as distinct or are they really muddled for us right now? Here's the best example of this I can give you. Every first week of June, a carnival shows up in town. And if you've got someone probably 12 and under, it's like Vegas has shown up, right? And they see the glittery lights, and they, you know, they smell the fried food, and, they see the, and, and they're going, it's just like moss to the flame, right? And they're just like... And then you as parent or grandparent or aunt or uncle decide... Against your better judgment, we're going to go do that. And you see it differently than they do, right? Like, and you're glad to do it because you love them. But when they see glory, you see scary, right? Where they see, like, the best day ever, you're like, I hope we make it home, right? Now, look, we go every year, and we love it, and we have a great time, right? But you have to admit, you, with your... With your adult eyes, you do not see the carnival like an eight-year-old does. Right? They They don't see anything other than fun. What Jesus is telling, what John is telling us here is this. That if we're looking at Jesus, if we have affection for Jesus, then we get to, we see the deception the world brings. We see the lies. We see the ways that it's trying to like lead us astray. But if we're not trusting after Jesus, if we're not walking after him, then the world trips us up often. And we begin to be like moths to the flame falling, going, oh, this would satisfy me more. This is what I want more. This is what I need more. Oh, Jesus, that is not loving for you to like, take this away from me. He's calling us to treasure Jesus in such a way that we see the lies of the world as unsatisfying that we could see it rightly and clearly so. So as John is ending his letter, that's, that's the call, that we would run hard after Jesus, connected to him through prayer, through his word, through his spirit, through his people, 
knowing that he's going to give us eyes to see truth. We're going to have eyes to see satisfaction, and we're going to see eyes to see things that have eyes to see things that actually are trying to lead us astray. And look, this is a process, and we're going to take two steps forward and a step back, and we're going to sidestep, and you're going to have seasons of your life where you see clearly, and you're like, I'll never not see clearly again. And then you're going to have, you're like, how'd I end up back here? Right? That, that's what this life looks like. It's, it's sanctification. But are we headed after him? Are we finding ourselves loving and treasuring and enjoying and satisfied in him more and more? He's saying the fight's worth it because we overcome. We win. We get him. And this world and its lies and its deception and its unsatisfying ways will fade away. It will be gone someday. And all those who follow after it. Listen, the, the band is going to come up here in just a moment. Um, but I just want us to take a couple minutes uh, this morning and, and, and just to remain seated and to ask ourselves this question. Where do I find satisfaction? Right? Like, what are some things in my life that right now satisfy me more than the things of God? Because we have them. And to ask the Spirit to show us why, where we're not trusting Him, where we're not satisfied, where we've bought into the things that the world has taught us, where the enemy has led us. And just ask Him to, to reveal that to us. Um, the Lord's Supper is also set up this morning. The Lord's Supper is for those who trust Jesus, who follow Jesus. Um, it's His... Right? It's, a, it's a chance for us to remember that the reason we have victory and the reason we have hope today is because it was His body crushed on our behalf and it was His blood spilled on our behalf. And we have hope for a future eternal because of Him. And so we walk in humility, not in pride. And so at any point during um, the last three songs this morning, you can get up alone um, as a family with friends and go back and take the bread and the cup as we celebrate and remember the reason we have hope this morning. But would you take a few moments to pray, to confess, to let the Lord direct and speak? Um, And then the band will come up and we'll stand and sing and worship our King who has brought us victory this morning.